when we saw these things on on white women, they were suddenly cool mm. to wear bindis and saris and 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 whatever else they had taken from our culture. But when we were wearing those same things, especially our mum's generations, or even us when we were younger, we were told, oh, that's gross. Or, oh, that's not fashionable. Hey, Bernie, welcome to the Sisterhood of Mommy Imperfect. I'm Rena, and this is a podcast where my fierce and fabulous guests and I explore different aspects of womanhood each and every week. We salute the game changers and we celebrate those women who are changing the world one bit at a time. And today I am talking to one of those women, Jaspreet Kaur, also known as Behind the Netra. She is a writer, a poet, a spoken word artist and a teacher. And to top it off, she's also hair goals personified. Let's just get Thank that out you. there. <laughs> just breathe. Welcome to the Sisterhood of Mommy Imperfect. You Thank okay? you. Thank you so much for having me. So listen, you, like I said, you're also known as behind the netra. Does that mean eyes? Is that what it means? Yeah, behind so the eyes? Yeah, no, definitely. Netra is a Sanskrit word that I came across years ago. I've, as, as a writer, as a poet, I've always been fascinated in linguistics and the origins of words and the etymology of words. And um, yeah, Netra was a word I came across years ago, and I just thought it was so beautiful, this one word, Netra, that had lots of different interpretations, but it does mean our eyes, and it means kind of the your eyes being the window to your soul. Mm. Um, and I'm sure people have heard that phrase and that saying before, but I just thought that was really beautiful, this idea of thinking about who we are behind this kind of physical sense behind this kind of physical being who are we all on a deeper level um so yeah that's where behind the nedra came about mm, because you started with writing poetry didn't you mm. but poetry is something I've been doing since I was 13 um so it's been quite a long journey with the poetry and as I've shared a lot online before I started writing as an outlet for myself um someone who's going through quite a lot as a young teenager, kind of navigating not only anxiety, but also things I was going through as a teenager in school, at home, and unfortunately didn't have any other outlets or any other kind Mm. of mental health support at that time. So I was using poetry and using writing as my therapy, as my outlet, um, Mm. and kept going from there. So my first form of writing has always been poetry and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely a spoken word poet through and through um but over the years other forms of writing has developed and kind of in, with my academic background looking at kind of research-based writing non-fiction based writing um and then also a bit more kind of fiction creative work as well so mm-hmm. yeah but poetry is where it all began yeah I hear yeah and even myself so with writing I think I started well actually I used to kind of try and write novels when I was like eight and write a different novel like start a different novel every week right and then um, when I the same as you like I kind of was trying to make sense of like oh who the hell am I what am I doing uh, but this mm. was when I was in my early 20s and I think it was kind of like you know when uni is over and you're like oh okay I'm in the big bad world now and mm. finding my way and just kind of trying to make sense of you know friendships relationships and things like that so that's what it became for me an outlet to do that as well and then my writing just grew from there so I'm I completely relate to that but that's a really interesting time that you time period that you mentioned as well I think 
I definitely resonate with that. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners can as well, that that time kind of post-university, starting the working world, you've kind of left the educational institutions that kind of helped you kind of navigate the world for from when you're a child up until that point when you're like 21 or in your early 20s and then it's like okay I'm going out into the world now and I have to navigate what it means to be who I am being a woman being being a South Asian woman being all these different parts of who we are so that part of our lives is really interesting and is something that's come up in the book quite a lot as well and was kind of the time period when when I started considering writing writing this book, writing Brown Girl Like Me. So you must be super excited at the moment because your book, Brown Girl Like Me, is coming out soon, isn't it? Very soon. Ooh, yeah. it's, oh, it's been a long journey to get here. It's been a long road. This is something I've been working on for about six, seven years now. And yeah, it's a crazy feeling knowing it's going to be in people's hands very soon and it's it's hitting bookshops very soon so a really exciting time but really well, grateful done that. it girl it's you know it's <laughs> going to be out there it's going to be on the bookshelf on my kids uh, repurposed bookshelf that we were talking about oh, <laughs> I love this repurposed bookshelf I love it <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but it's um it's it's good and it is really exciting and can you just give a brief description what brown girl like me is about mm, yeah absolutely it's it's a narrative nonfiction, and we've been calling it a number of different things. We've been calling it a toolkit. We've been calling it a guidebook. We've been calling it a brown girl manifesto, a call to arms. Um, and I think it really is all of those things. It's, it's mm. the book that I wished I had growing up. It's the book that I wished I, I had as, as teenage Jasper going into our 20s, going into my adult life trying to figure out how to navigate all these different parts of, of what makes us a brown girl and, and a brown woman. Um, but doing that in a way that is inspiring and empowering. Um, and I guess for a very long time, I was just really tired of not seeing South Asian women anywhere and growing up, never seeing us on TV screens and books and literature. And then in the academic sense and in the educational sense as a history teacher, just never seeing us reflected in our national curriculum either. So I remember going, growing up and being in schools and, and just being in school and never seeing anybody that looked like us or sounded like us in our textbooks or, or being taught about in the classroom. And for a long time, that just didn't feel right. I was like, well, I know there are so many incredible South Asian women out there. I can see them in my family. I can, mm. I can see them in my friendships. I can see them in the history that I was learning within the home. I knew there were so many amazing stories about brown women, but they just weren't being shared. Um, and it was when I was doing my master's in gender studies. So I did an undergrad in history, went on to, to study gender studies. And that's when I started to kind of piece some of these ideas together. Um, And over the last few years, I've been interviewing Asian women from across the country, from every Asian demographic, um, Pakistani women, Indian women, Bangladeshi women, Sri Lankan women, Mm -hmm. um, from all kind of age demographics. The youngest girls were about 15, all the way up to women in their 80s and 90s, to really kind of collect all of these stories and these anecdotes and these moments of when they've made it through difficult times or, or moments where they really excelled despite all the barriers they might have faced um, and gathering all of that. Um, and it's a range of different themes, everything from our mental health str- struggles to, to body image, to love and relationships, um, but also bringing it into 
the real kind of current day and looking at how Asian women like ourselves have used the, the digital space and have used social media as a way to navigate our identities and, and find other women that we can find solidarity in. So it's it's been a long time coming and, and there hasn't been a book like this mm. since um, the last kind of comparative title, a, a narrative nonfiction like yep. this was by Umrit Wilson back in the 70s. And that was looking at kind of first wave migrant Asian women in the, in the 70s. But there hadn't been anything since. Um, there'd been memoirs, there'd been autobiographies, um, a few fictional books that have come out in the last few years, which has been incredible, um, but not this kind of collated story of, of what it means to be an Asian woman in the Western world. So, so yeah, that, that is Brown Girl Like Me. Mm. Um, and and I'm, I'm just really proud that it's 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 reaching people in this way um and hopefully going to help people as much as possible yeah yeah it it will because i would have liked that when i was growing up as well and one thing you mentioned there solidarity and that's really important and that's the reason why i'm doing this podcast where i want to talk to you mm-hmm. and other people like you as well because i think because you know we're we're brown girls and we're 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 in the uk we're in a western world like you say there's that thing of like oh there's only there's like there's one girl who's made it or like, you know, for example, mm-hmm. oh, Anita Rani's the, the presenter, right? Mindy Kaling over in the US, mm-hmm. she's the the funny brown woman or or Lily Singh or something. That's it. You know what I mean? The quota has been filled. And then, because um, mm. I remember, I think Mindy Kaling herself kind of said that she didn't want other women to kind of reach where she was because she wanted to be the only one because it was kind of, you know, that threat of like, oh, no, you know, everything's going to be taken away from can me. Can there be more than one of us? Exactly. Um, can there be more than one of us? And it's like, it's, it, ridiculous, it's it? crazy. There's so many stars mm. in the sky. Like, why can't there be more than one of us? And that attitude is kind of pitted women against each other. And, and mm. especially like brown women who are trying to mm. make it in this Western world. Mm. You know, I, I, I completely agree. And it's something I've kind of tried to unpack in the book about what, why is it that we, we act this way or where have these these norms come from? And you're absolutely right. I think not only for South Asian women, but women as a whole, we, we have been taught to be competitive with one another and not necessarily be supportive of one another because society has told us that there's not enough space for each of us to have these opportunities. It's a patriarchy. Have it's success. actually the patriarchy, really, a, saying that yeah, not, only a few women can make it. You know what I mean? And, the, and that system will always work and that structure will stay in place if we keep doing this to one another, because yes. that's exactly what the patriarchy wants. If we were to support one another, if we were able to have this solidarity with one another, mm. we would be able to dismantle a lot of these structures. And that's terrifying for patriarchy. Yeah. And that's terrifying for these powerful positions and people in privilege because they don't want us to come together they don't want coalition because that could dismantle their places of power so when it comes to this sort of stuff I'm I'm really passionate about about supporting other women Mm. especially within the South Asian community not to have this I call it crabs in a bucket um, while somebody's trying to go up with kind of pulling each other back down but if we if we think about why we're doing that and we think about the fact that white powerful men are allowed to take up as many positions as they want. And they have for a very, very long time historically. Mm -hmm. You can have a hundred different white male authors and that's okay. But apparently you can only have one Asian woman. You can have a hundred white male actors, but you can only have one Asian woman. 
that that that's just not right and I think we need to keep challenging this and say okay if we are reaching positions of moving forward we're bringing up other women with us yeah, yeah, and bringing yeah. up the next generation with us 100%. and that's why a lot of the work that I do is with young people um my background as an educator as a teacher I do a lot of work with young people within schools and community spaces to make sure we are pulling this next generation of Asian girls up with us um because it shouldn't be okay one box is ticked so we can't have anybody else um, and, and just questioning why do we have this mindset? Where does it come from? And that feeling of, of, of sometimes it's jealousy, sometimes it is this feeling of I'm not good enough or low self-esteem. So when we see other people succeeding, we, we feel uncomfortable. We don't want it to happen. Yes. That, that's something I've picked up in, in the book about why is it that Asian women have such low self-esteem? And is it because we were never given a strong foundation of self-love and not given a strong foundation of, of being secure in ourselves and confident in ourselves? So when we grow older, we do have these insecurities when we see things happening around us. So in the book, I'm suggesting that what we need to be doing is raising young girls, raising young Asian girls and also Asian women later on in their lives to have this strong foundation of self-love. If we have that strong foundation, no matter what happens in life and whatever happens going forward, we, we are secure in ourselves. We say, OK, I know who I am. I know who my values are. I love who I am. So with those intentions, everything else will be coming from quite a good place and quite a healthy place yes. rather from jealousy or, or lack of self-esteem or, or some of these darker traits mm. that end up coming out. But like you're saying, all this kind of jealousy and lack of self-esteem. I mean, the jealousy, I think it comes from lack of self-esteem, like, you know, lack mm. of confidence. And when I think about South Asian women, like when they came here and just like me growing up and I don't think that we were taught to, I, I don't think we were given that many compliments at home. Not mm. really, you know, and oh it, was, God, it no. was the kind of thing <laughs> of like, oh, you know, if we tell her too much. She's going to get a big head and then go around in a miniskirt you know, like a, <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> she's going to go out and just, you know, do whatever because she's going to be so up herself. And so it was kind of like, you know, you need to know your place and don't do anything too crazy. But I'm, because I've got three daughters. So I, I'm very mindful of, I'm trying to build them up in the house as much as possible because when they go out there, they're going to compare themselves anyway, especially, you know, when you're young mm -hmm. and then you're like, oh, yeah. you know, why no do I look race. like Exactly. Why do I mm. look like this? Why is this mm. person like this? Am I good enough? And I've got mm. a daughter that's going to be 13 and I've got, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of noticing these kind of things she's thinking about and stuff. So I'm just like, mm. I'm going to try and build these kids up as much as I can. I will tell them how smart and pretty they are at home, mm. you know, because I think they need, to know this and I know it's gonna be the point where it's like oh yeah but you're my mom so whatever I don't care <laughs> you know yeah I don't I don't care I tell my nieces you know mm. I tell my my friends I just think that because they're true things like I'm not even bullshitting anybody like they're actually mm. things which is like you need to know this about yourself and I don't think that we were we were told we that were really told that. no no I don't think we were and there's a lot of reasons for that especially when we're looking at kind of gender disparities and how boys are treated against how yes. girls are treated 
And obviously for yourself, having three daughters, you've probably had to navigate this in lots of different ways of, of this ongoing son preference yes. and how boys are put up on this pedestal and then treated, treated like these golden princes. And, and the girls, on the other hand, might not be treated in that same way. Or we're teaching boys to be brave and, and we're teaching them to grow out. But we tell girls to grow in and we kind of make them smaller and tell them not to yeah. be too loud or confident or any of these things and, and do make them feel smaller. So exactly what you're doing as a parent, the best thing we can be doing for our kids is telling them that they are smart, they are courageous, they are brave, and that no matter what happens, what mistakes they make, what failures they have, they can pick themselves back up because they have these qualities. Um, and I think exactly what you're doing as a mum, being that role model for them is probably the best thing that they can see. Seeing their mum being confident in herself is is incredibly valuable for kids and kind of setting that example for them but also showing them the kind of insecurities too and say okay mommy goes through these things too mum mm-hmm. has difficult moments and this is how we overcome them yeah. I think is is incredibly empowering for kids and there is the chapter on parenthood in the book and, and raising a brown feminist and though I'm not a mum yet hopefully will be one day what I wanted to put in that chapter was just these stories and these anecdotes of, of brown mums and the things that they've had to navigate when they're raising kids now in this next generation of, of brown kids. What kind of values do we want to install in them? And I think those values of, of building them their self-confidence from the outset yeah. is, is really important. So in the book, like you talk a little bit about how brown women were when they came to the UK and kind of how they've evolved so do you do you actually think that that we've come a long way from that that those women who literally stepped off the boat to to who we are now yeah absolutely I think evolved is an interesting word because I think if we look at the context of of what those women had to go through and and the situations that they were in they they struggled in a very different way to perhaps how we struggle today um, they may have struggled with with the threat of actual physical violence in a way that we might not have to today. They had to set a foundation for their families in a very different way than than we do today. So I think the context of the time for a lot of those women was was very difficult and very hard. And I do share some of those stories of, of my mum's journey in the yeah. book. Um, also, BG, who's my husband's maternal grandma, sharing some of her stories as as a widow. Um, she was a widow for almost 30 years. Some of the struggles that she had to go through were all quite different. And um, what I wanted to highlight in the book was that there are still similarities between perhaps our generation and their genera- generation. There's lots of differences too. But I think there's learnings that we can take from their generation. And I say it from the outset in that introduction that brown women are strong. Um, If we look at our ancestors, if we look at our grandparents, if we look at our mothers, they have had to make it through a lot. Everything from from partition to mass migration to displacement, famine, poverty, and then even migrating to new countries, even when they had to come here. Exactly. They had to set up a foundation. Without even knowing the language. Yes. My, my, you know, my, my nanny, she she didn't come across as this kind of, you know, very vocal, strong woman. She's very reserved mm. and quiet. But then I kind of thought she came on her own, like as my granddad was already mm. here, she came on her own with several children to a country. She didn't, like we had no mobile phones or anything. 
yeah. had no clue about anything, didn't know the language, didn't know a word of English, just rocked mm. up here and made a life. They opened a business and stuff, you know. So I just yeah. look at that and think that's strength, you know. That's strength, yeah. And that's in us. That strength of our ancestors, yeah. it is in us. So when people try to pitch Asian women as, as weak and, and quiet no. and docile yeah. and submissive, we need to be like, nah, like, let's look back at our, our bloodlines. Let's yeah. look back at the women that, that have raised us and say, you know what? No, we are strong. And there's a really beautiful Italian word called, it's, 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 it's the word pianoforte. And it's, it's the origin of the word piano, which we all know, the instrument piano. It comes from the word piano forte, which was an Italian word from, from the Middle Ages. And the word translated into English means soft but strong. And I'm like, that, that, that is a really beautiful description of how I see Asian women. We are piano forte. We are soft but strong. And, and what I mean by that is, is that soft sometimes gets put down as quite a negative attribute as, oh, if you're too soft, you're weak. But I think the soft parts of Asian women are, are so beautiful that we're caring, we're, we're nurturing, we, we, we know how to look after others, sometimes before ourselves, which is a bit problematic that we mm-hmm. are always putting people before ourselves. But this part of us that is, is caring and nurturing is so beautiful. But alongside that, is we we are incredibly strong we are resilient we know how to pick ourselves back up we know how to make it through anything so that's what I wanted to show in this book this is how I see Asian women and that's what I want us to feel about ourselves I think that's the advantage of being a woman in general isn't it you you can be Mm. soft but strong that that's our thing you know what I mean we can be nurturers we can go Mm. out and run businesses as well you know, mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, we can, we can, uh, in the words of Beyonce, you know, have your baby, then get back to business. We can do that if you want to do that. <laughs> um, okay. So you spoke quite a bit about, um, mental health in the book, don't you? You speak a lot about mental health and the stigma of speaking out about it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, from you growing up and to now, do you think things are changing a little bit? Mm, yeah, that, that chapter on mental health, Brown and Down, it's the first chapter of the book, um, a really important chapter and probably the hardest one to write. Um, and I was kind of double guessing myself of, did I want to start the book with that chapter? It's a very heavy chapter. Did yeah. I want to start with that? Should I start with something a bit more lighthearted and softer? But I'm glad I did because I wanted to start from a place of vulnerability I wanted to start from this very difficult topic about mental health because I felt like that was the first challenge we needed to get over before we could move on to a lot of the other topics so I think since I since I was a teenager and kind of where the book starts of me suffering from anxiety attacks and not telling anybody about it and and suffering in silence I think we're definitely moving in the right direction I think there has been a major shift Um, in the last few years about us being more open about our mental health journeys. I think the pandemic has definitely helped in this sense of a lot of people were realizing that they were suffering from mental health issues that they may have not been before. Um, And I think what we now need to see is us having these open conversations within our homes and within our communities so that it isn't stigmatized anymore and that we're not suffering in silence anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing a major shift happening and there's a, a lot of incredible resources in the book that I've mentioned, the South Asian therapist directory, groups like Beraki, 
um, other grassroots organizations mm-hmm. like Sorge Mental Health. There's lots of now these networks and groups and directories really talking about these things and, and targeting the groups that need supporting as well. Sometimes the older generations might be left out of these conversations or, or still find it difficult to articulate how they feel or have the language to talk about how they're feeling. So I think we need to make sure we're still reaching them too in community spaces, yeah. in Godware, in temples, in mosques, in, in all these different realms so that it is a collective form of healing because it, it, it needs to be a collective form of healing no matter what generation we're looking at, whether it's grandma's suffering from depression or if it's granddaughter's suffering from anxiety we we all need to have this sense of healing um and it, it sounds like a quite a lofty thing but I say it in the book that I, I do feel like we're the generation of healing and I I hope that when we look at our children and our children's children that that intergenerational trauma that we've seen will slowly start to get cut off and that will slowly start to reduce because we are putting our mental health first um but yeah it's a really important topic a really important issue that I wanted to raise in the book and I I I hope and I I feel we are going in the right direction Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I mean I I know that when when I was younger like there was nothing we couldn't even say oh I've got anxiety like I, I actually recently recorded a podcast about anxiety and that was one of the things that I spoke about to um Nizja the doctor that I was speaking to that there was no words mm-hmm. to say anything. There was, you know what I mean? We just didn't know how to actually express what we were going through. So how could mm. we explain it? And plus nobody would take it seriously anyway. Yeah, that's it. I, I, when I was having anxiety attacks, I, I the first one I had, I thought I was having a heart attack because medically that was the only other thing I'd heard about at the time I was like hey if this is happening to my body maybe I'm having a heart mm. attack at the age of 13 that's what I actually thought was happening to my body because you're right we we didn't know how to speak about it and because it was so taboo we didn't know how to raise it and and then that issue of this kind of stigmatized issue within our communities and with our home putting that hand in hand with the fact that mental health services out there were not culturally sensitive. They weren't looking at how they could support communities like yeah. ours or how they could support Asian girls. Like the first time I went to see a therapist, I was at uni and they had kind of like a counsellor within the uni. And that was the first time I went and spoke to somebody about anxiety. And it was a white woman in her late forties. And she said, if I wanted to live a happier and more independent life, that I should leave my family. I should move out the house. And I was like, okay, okay, she's really not getting what I'm trying to explain to her here. She was just missing a lot of kind of the verbal, non-verbal cues about what it's like as an Asian woman and kind of those those different complex nuances that we have to navigate. And, and that's that's what I'm also highlighting in the book, that yes, we as individuals and yes, mm-hmm. we as a community can be tackling the stigma, but we also need wider mental health services, the NHS, um, both kind of private and public mental uh, mental health support to be more culturally sensitive to up their knowledge of our communities so that they know how to better support us because it doesn't make sense that they're using a model that might work for a white man or a white woman exactly white girl that model might not work for us so this is where we need to see mental health services upping their game as well Um, so yeah tackling the stigma seeing what we can do on an individual level, but also looking for these wider institutions to to fix up as well. Mm -hmm. 
I just want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about representation. Um, and I know you talk a, a little bit about that in the book as well, don't you? So, um, I mean, <laughs> there is obviously more now. Like, growing up, what was it like for you? Like, who were your brown girl role models? Was it Bollywood or was it just, <laughs> did you just look up Western women? Like, what was it? Yeah, no, no, it's a great question. Um, in the book, I, I, I like laugh to myself when I think about it, because growing up, it was, I was looking at people like Princess Jasmine, because she was the only princess who looked remotely yes. like myself and was like obsessed. We with all princess did it. Jasmine. We all did it. Yeah. Lunchbox had like the cassette of, of mm. the movie, had the doll, had everything, because she was the only one who felt a little bit like, okay, she was meant to be a Middle Eastern representation. So she wasn't exactly an Asian Punjabi woman, but because she looked a bit like myself, I was like, okay, this is my princess. And then I grew up, you saw a few movies here and there. We had Bend It Like Beckham, you had Goodness Gracious Me, and you had those icons. But other than that, there was no mainstream representation. So I looked to women in my family and growing up, there were there's definitely my mom, my sister, my grandmother, those kind of women, those role models. Um, and then also, thankfully, my dad, was also a big bookworm, an avid reader. So we would always have books lying around the house. We'd have history books, geography books, fiction, nonfiction from a, a range of different backgrounds. Um, so as soon as I started reading, I started reading some of the books around the house and I would hear about stories of, of women like My Bungle or Jansi Birani. And I'd hear about these amazing Asian women that did incredible things, uh, Safiya Dilip Singh, Maharani Jindpur, women from our history that never got the recognition in kind of our schools. It was never in our curriculum. Mm-hmm. But I was learning about them in the home. So, so those women were definitely kind of my inspirations growing up. And then I guess as I got older and, and started to understand my feminist identity, I then started to read more about Black feminists from the 80s and 90s, South Asian feminists. Um, people like Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, um, Arundhati Roy, um, and a number of these kind of South Asian intersectional Black feminists, um, and got a lot of inspiration from them over the years. And it's women like them that showed me that I can be all the things that I want to be. Yeah, I can be a teacher. I can be a poet. I can be a writer. I can be all of these things at the same time if I want to be. Um, because I think, especially for women, so often we're told we can only be one thing. I can only be a teacher or I can only be a writer. I can't do everything I want to do. But a lot of those women showed me that, yes, you can absolutely do anything you want to do. Don't feel like you need to tick one box. Um, so that that definitely inspired me a lot over, over recent mm, years. So they were the women that you looked up to? Mm, absolutely absolutely yeah but there's women like them I think people like Bell Hooks or Audre Lorde or Arundhati Roy that I mentioned they they were all writers but they were also educators lecturers teachers they also wrote poetry um so I I guess I see a lot of myself in them too yeah yeah I think for me it's a similar kind of thing with people like Mira Sayal because like she's uh done like comedy and because I like write bits of comedy and stuff and um mm. you know uh books and acting and stuff so I've kind of looked at her and thought oh you know that is somebody who is like the the benchmark so mm. so I, I I totally totally get it um one thing I was going to say is when you were like these women have shown that we can be 
several things at once. I think for brown women, it's so difficult for us. And I've discussed this before in the podcast when I talked about being, can you be a desi feminist? Because really, like when we look at our culture and, and it is a beautiful culture and, and you know, I, I want to kind of keep that culture with me. But there's certain things which clash when you're looking at feminism and you're looking at desi culture and you're like, I don't know, I'm not, this something doesn't sit right with me. I think it's very hard personally to kind of mm. marry the two things. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting you have said that because I think what, what we've been ta- taught in terms of kind of mainstream media about feminism, especially in the Western world, is that we've been, we've been told that this is a Western concept. It's a white Western concept, this idea of feminism, um, because we see kind of the first movements being the suffragette movement in the early 1900s, and, and that's what we see feminism as. But if we look at our Eastern Asian cultures, these feminist traits and, and this idea of feminism was going back way further. And I'm talking thousands of years. I'm talking back to the Vedic century. We've got elements of this kind of feminist ideals going back way further. So I think sometimes we need to challenge that idea of what feminism is sometimes and not get mis- mistaken that, that it's a white Western concept. And, and this is where intersectional feminism really comes in about a real form of feminism is one that uplifts all kinds of women from all backgrounds, no matter what gender they ascribe to, um, we are uplifting all women so that they are seen as equals. So I think that's sometimes we something we need to figure out, especially us as Asian women, of seeing yeah. feminist feminism doesn't mean you have to come closer to whiteness. Um, and sadly, sometimes that's how it's been personified. When we're looking out in mainstream media, sometimes feminism, white feminism, has told Asian women that if they want to be strong, independent feminists, then they need to leave their culture behind or they mm-hmm. need to leave their faith behind. And you probably notice that media will love publishing articles or, or having having um, um, movies or, or shows about when Asian women are denouncing their culture or saying bad things about their culture and how oppressive it was yeah definitely and and, and don't get me wrong I completely agree that there's parts of our culture and parts of our even maybe our faith or parts of our background that is oppressive to Asian women and I've highlighted those in the book things like sun preference things like forced arranged marriages domestic violence FGM um, and sometimes some of those quieter nuances of how we're treated in the home and how the men get to eat first um, and all those things definitely need to be eradicated. This, this and is what I'm saying. Yeah. Challenge them. Mm-hmm. But we can be a feminist and challenge those things that are problematic, but still stand up for the great things in our culture as well. Um, and it's figuring that out. And that's what this book was really trying to show that you can be a strong, independent feminist woman uphold your culture, be a woman of faith. I can still be a Punjabi Sikh woman and own that part of my identity as well as being a feminist without having to denounce everything about who I am too. So it's quite a, a complex thing to figure out, but it is, it is. I, I've tried my best to try and unpack it in the book. And, and hopefully Asian women, by, by, by the point of finish, finishing reading that book, they'll see that there are so many beautiful, empowering things in our culture and our identity that yeah. will uplift us and inspire us and the things that are problematic we just need to leave behind do you think we need to start owning our culture a bit more because 
there was a period in time in popular white culture when brown was cool. Like, remember when people were wearing bindis and Madonna wore bindis and it was like, oh, yeah, it's cool. And, you know, people who are really into yoga and all this. I'm going on a yoga retreat and all this kind of thing. But it's when it's been a- appropriated, you know. So I'm I'm kind of thinking, like, I think we need to own our culture a little bit more. You know, if we want to wear chandra and trainers. Go for it. it that's yeah. what I'm saying. Without, without saying to each other. You're such a bindu. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> or some of the, yeah, bindu, these derogative terms, <clears throat> freshy, these other terms we, we've come up with over the years. The reason we see these forms of cultural appropriation happening, and that whole chapter is looking at this unequal cultural exchange, <clears throat> the fact that when we saw these things on, on white women, they were suddenly cool mm. to wear bindis <clears throat> and lenge and saris and, and, and whatever else they've taken from our culture. But when we were wearing those same things, especially our mum's generations, or even us when we were younger, we were told, oh, that's gross. Or, oh, that's not fashionable. Oh, you're a freshie. Or being called every name under the sun. Um, but now I think we're in a really interesting place where you're absolutely right. We can own our culture and feel a sense of pride in it. And if you want to mish and mash your, your cultural items with, yep. with your Western items too, that's totally fine. I think we need to start owning who we are so that it doesn't get owned by other people. And, and in the book, I'm highlighting that you can absolutely appreciate other people's cultures without appropriating them. So if you are a white woman and you do want to wear a sari to your best friend's wedding because she is Asian, then that's an okay place to do it. I kind of it's, put those things yeah. in context of where it is okay to appreciate one another's cultures. But it's not okay to wear it as a costume to a Halloween party. To or, ever call it a costume it. is just a no, basically. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> like, yeah. So in the book, I'm really describing what cultural appropriation is, because I think it's been a hot topic on social media for a few years, but a lot of people haven't really taken the time to understand what it is. The actual social and political theory behind it is this idea of a dominant culture, i.e. white culture, taking elements of a less dominant culture, i.e. Asians or the black community, and then commodifying those things, making money out of them, exotifying them, um, making them fashionable um, when we didn't get to experience those same benefits. So that's what it is, this kind of unequal cultural exchange. And I I describe what it feels like when it happens. And I give kind of anecdotal stories of when it happened to my mom, when we've seen it happen on runways, when we see it in music videos, what it feels like. And it it feels a bit like, well, that's not fair, that that hurts. Um, But ultimately, what can we do better as a society? So we're not appropriating, we're not disrespecting the host communities that they come from, these cultural elements. But then we, the actual host communities, what can we do better for ourselves? And it's absolutely what you said. It's, it's owning who we are and, and finding a sense of pride in that because that's the only thing we can control, um, how we feel about ourselves before we expect anybody else to respect us. Yeah, 100%. Just Preet, thank you so much for coming on The Sisterhood of Mommy and Perfect. I'm really excited that your book is going to be out there for people to own and read soon. Um, and just quickly, just remind everyone um, where they can get a little bit more uh, information about Brown Girl Like Me when it comes out and where they can find more info about you. 
Oh, absolutely. So Brown Girl Like Me is going to be available at all good bookshops. Um, and you can find all the links to that at www.browngirllikeme.com. Um, and if you find, like to find out a bit more about myself, you can find me online at Behind the Nedra. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Share it, please. Share the Brown Girl Love. Subscribe. Follow me at Sisterhood of Mommy Imperfect on Insta. There's a Mommy Imperfect Facebook page if that's what you like to do. Um, on Twitter at Rina Dipti. Until next week, I love you. Bye.